The scripture passage for this evening's message is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 13, going through chapter 3, verse 8. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Before I pray, I want to say a word uh, to all the campuses concerning what's happening next week and how important I think it is so that you'll be alert to it. Uh, Treasuring Christ Together is the Bethlehem-wide vision for multiplying campuses, 
planting churches and the global diaconate, which is a ministry to the poorest of the poor around the world. We have in place a church planting resident, Charlie Handren. Charlie, for the last year, has been dreaming, and others now with him, about planting a church in the Rogers Elk River area. It's well underway in Nugget. They meet uh, every other week or the first and the third Sunday evenings, and they plan to launch out from us on October 7 of this year. You will vote at the end of April in the strategy meeting on whether treasuring Christ together money will help sustain that church for its first two years. And Charlie preaches next week at my request. I want the whole church to know who he is, what his vision is, so that we can get our arms around this vision. And I hope that you will come and support Charlie. In fact, uh, Charlie, I know you're listening to this at the North Campus tomorrow morning. Um, I hope that some of what you say will be your own story. Don't dictate what you're going to say, but I get so helped when I hear how God saved you. So we'll see what he says. This is important. Planting another church is part of what we're about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, marriage is about keeping covenant between a husband and a wife in order to display the relationship between Christ and his church. And therefore, what we are talking about in this series and in this message here is very important for marriages to become what they ought to be to display the truth about Jesus. We don't want our marriages to lie to the world. We want them to tell the truth to the world. And so grant that our understanding would increase and our fitness to be husbands and wives would increase. And may those who are single or children or widowers or widows all embrace this and be a part of cultivating this vision. I ask in Jesus' name for your help. Amen. So we go on with our series. Having taken two weeks away, our series on marriage and the focus in this message is on the meaning of the submission of a wife to a husband. And I'm very, very eager that men and women, old and young, even children, single and married, would hear this as a call to something very strong, very noble, very beautiful, very dignified, very worthy of a woman's highest spiritual and moral efforts. So to set the stage, we need to see two phrases in verse 1 of chapter 3. Step back, get the big picture, and then dig in. The two phrases are first, 
the phrase, your own. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That means that there is a unique kind of submission between a husband and a wife that she owes to no other man, not the mailman, not the pastor. In other words, wifely submission is a species of the larger reality, which is why I asked Jesse to read that long text. It's all about submission. This is a species of it. That's the first observation. Second observation is the phrase, likewise wives. Likewise wives. This means that the call for a wife's submission is part of a larger call for submission, beginning back at 2.13 and running on through 3.12. Let's walk through that text just to get the picture. Verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2. Be subject, all of you, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him. In other words, keep your speed limit. Pay your taxes. Be respectful of policemen and senators, etc. Second, verses 18 to 25 of chapter 2. Household servants in the church, be submissive to your masters, even those that are overbearing. Testify that your treasure is in heaven and not in being treated well. Third, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. That's where we're going to focus. Wives, be submissive to your husbands, even to the unbelieving. That's who they are who don't obey the word. Number four, verse seven. Husbands, live together considerately with your wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Fifth, verses eight to 12 of chapter three. The whole church, unity, sympathy, love, tenderheartedness, humility, in other words, wear the mark of majesty in this church. Serve each other. Be submissive to each other. Build each other up. Be tenderhearted and kind and gentle and humble and servant-like. Everybody. So there's the unit of Scripture in which verses 1 to 6 falls. So what we want to do first, before we tackle the meaning of submission, what, it, what it's not and what it is, is let Peter paint a portrait of womanhood, because that's what he does here. In fact, that's probably the most important thing he does here, and maybe the most important thing that I will do. So I want us just to spend a few minutes gazing at the portrait of womanhood in verses 1 to 6, and what we'll see when we do this is that there are roots of submission that are magnificent, deep, strong, defining womanhood before that issue ever comes on the scene. That's a fruit up here on the tree. And there are trunks and roots to this womanhood that are magnificent. Start with verse 5. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting 
to their own husbands. The deepest root of womanhood is hope in God. The deepest root of Christian womanhood. That's where we start defining Christian womanhood. Hope in God. Holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves a certain way. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting one. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her looks. It's manifest in this text. Remember my favorite verse in the Proverbs 31 woman chapter? Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. I love that verse. Everything that's coming at me, I'm laughing at you. That's a woman. She doesn't cringe. She doesn't run. She's not naive about what's coming. She knows what's coming, and she laughs. Because holy women of old hoped in a sovereign God who promises to help women whenever she needs him. That's what stamps most deeply. A woman in Christ knows her Bible, knows her theology of a sovereign God who makes promises, knows his promises to be with her no matter what. She draws strength down from this, and certain kind of tree grows up from this massive, deep root of hope in God. That's number one. Number two, this hope in God yields fearlessness. Verse six, second half of the verse. And you women... Are Sarah's children, are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Which comes from hope in God. There's plenty that's frightening in the world. Frightening in relationships, frightening in children, frightening in health, frightening in the future. And Peter says, you will be Sarah's daughters if you're not afraid of anything. Because you're a holy woman who hopes in God. And he's sovereign over all these frightening things. And you know that. And you rest in him. And that drives out your fear. Mature Christian women are not naive about what's coming at them. They've read the rest of the book. Chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. She knows suffering's coming. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those, we could just simply say, those women, 
Let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The deepest root of a Christian woman is hope in God and it yields this strong tree of fearlessness in the face of suffering. Third, growing out of that Hope in God, fearless faith is a certain kind of attention to adornment. Let's read it. Verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That cannot mean that it is wrong to give no attention, to give any attention to your hair. It cannot mean that it's wrong to wear an earring, a bracelet, a necklace. And the reason it can't mean that is because if in that sequence of hair, jewelry, clothing, it meant that, it would mean she couldn't wear clothing. Which manifestly, it doesn't mean. So don't let your adorning be your clothing doesn't mean you can't wear any. And don't let your adorning be your braiding of your hair doesn't mean you can't do it. And don't wear, don't let your adorning be gold jewelry doesn't mean you can't wear any. What does it mean? It means that when you think about focusing your mind on something, focusing your energy on something, focusing your time on something, that's not where your mind goes. Your mind goes, I will spend my life, I will spend my creativity, I'll spend my prayer, I'll spend my efforts becoming beautiful with a kind of beauty that is imperishable. This thing, this thing is going to perish. Promise you, it will. Before you're dead, it will perish. So don't put your big investment there. It will let you down. This will not And not only will this not let you down, but God looks on it and really likes it when a woman devotes her hope in God, her fearlessness. I will become now a beautiful woman with the kind of beauty that can never perish. It's a matter of proportion. It's a matter of priority. I don't want the women of our church to let themselves go. You understand that? But in our culture, that's not usually the problem. Usually the problem is all the investment is going into the health club, the hair, the figure, the jewelry, the makeup. Please, I got to look a certain way when the energy ought to be flowing the other 
direction. So that's the third thing. So first, hope in God. Second, fearlessness of all the frightening things that are coming. And third, out of that contentment in God, there is a kind of adornment to which you give very energetic attention. And it isn't makeup. It is mainly the inner person that you are becoming. Fourth, oh, before I give you the fourth, my note just reminds me, he does get specific about the nature of that inner person, namely tranquility. That would be the word I would use. to. He says, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse four, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, In other words, out of this hope in God, fearlessness, the adornment is tranquility, serenity. Not anxiety, not loud, boisterous control, but a steady, strong, deep, tranquil, peaceful, gentle, quiet, serene inner spirit. Nothing shakes this one. Now, number four, submission is what grows from those three things. Verse one, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So please, do not try to produce that fruit without this tree and this root. Hope in God, fearlessness in view of all the fearful things that are coming, the adornment of a sweet, deep, strong, unshakable, serene, tranquil spirit yielding this. Don't go here first. It will not make you beautiful. This will. It is very sad to me that we live in the culture we do in regard to these things because modern society, even in the church, neglects or despises the complementary differences between headship and submission in marriage. It's regarded as a cultural leftover, sub-Christian from the first century. Others distort it into pathological, strange behaviors. I sat in my office one time with a man who believed that his wife's submission meant she could not go from one room to the other in the house without his permission. That's the kind of pathology that makes it very easy for people to read a text like this and just throw it away. However, we don't do that. We don't throw babies out with dirty bath water in this church. We love babies beautiful babies, 
We nurture babies so that they will grow up into what they ought to be. So let that bathwater go and hug this baby because it is beautiful. And that's what I would like to try to explain now. The truth of headship and the truth of submission are in the Bible and they're not only here, they're beautiful. One way to think about them from last two Sundays is that they are one way of wearing the mark of majesty as a wife. Husband has a way of wearing his. She has a way of wearing hers. That's what the text is about. We do not cancel out headship and submission lest we cancel out Christ and the church. So here's the question. First, what is it not? Six things it's not. And second, what is it? Submission. Number one, what it's not. I'm getting all these out of verses one to six. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. And you can see that in verse one clearly. She's a Christian and he's not. He has one set of ideas about the ultimate meaning of the universe. She has another set of ideas about the ultimate meaning of reality. Peter calls her to be submissive, assuming she will not submit to his unbelief by joining him in unbelief. In other words, at the most important level, she won't submit to his idea. I'm not joining you in unbelief. Kill me. And that's not a contradiction of biblical submission, Peter says. Number two, submission does not mean leaving your brain and your will at the wedding altar. It's not the inability or the unwillingness to think for yourself. Here is a woman who heard the gospel. She thought about the gospel. She assessed the truth claims of the gospel. She apprehended the spiritual beauty of Christ. And she made a choice. I submit to Jesus. I'm a Christian. I believe. Her husband also heard the gospel. And the reason I believe that is because of the little phrase, he's disobedient to the word. That he chose that phrase to describe his unbelief means he's heard the word. And that she can win him without a word is because he's heard the word. And he thought about it. And he decided, that's not for me. Her thinking was not governed by his thinking on this issue. And it's not a contradiction to biblical submission. It's not leaving your brain and your will, the decision-making power, at the wedding altar. Number three, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change a husband. Submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change a husband. The whole point of this text is how to change a husband. Isn't it? 
You can win him, win him, win him, which means change the most important thing about him. Be subject to your own husbands so that, this is verse 1, even if some do not obey the word, they may be gained or won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So if you, care, if you don't care about the Bible, you might say submission has to mean taking the husband the way he is with no effort to change it. If you don't care about the Bible, you might say submission has to mean that. That's what the word means. Take him as he is, no effort to change. But if you believe what the Bible says... You conclude, paradoxically, this text calls for submission as a means of changing you. Number four, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. And the text clearly teaches the wife is a follower of Jesus before and above being a follower of her husband. Submission to Jesus relativizes all other submissions. Submission to government is relativized. Submission to employers is relativized. Submission to parents is relativized. Submission to husband is relativized, meaning Christ is supreme. When I submit to him, that may bring me into conflict with submissions down here, and this one is absolute. These are not. These are relative to that one. Christ, I always submit to. These four seers of life, I usually submit to, but may not if they conflict with my king. When it says that Sarah, in verse 6, called Abraham Lord, very interesting. Wish we had time to go into this. It's Lord with a little L, as in the phrase, my Lord. It's a throwaway phrase. You go back and read it. Just look in your little margin. You go back and read it in Genesis 22. It's a throwaway phrase. There's no big theological thing hanging on it at all. Peter picks out a most insignificant little throwaway phrase, my Lord. But when Sarah is described in Hebrews 11 as a woman of faith, it's because she is obeying Lord with a capital L. And there is no question where Abraham fits into her scheme. And there should be no question for any Christian woman where her husband fits in like 10,000 miles below Jesus. And it's for Jesus' sake that she submits to him. That's number four. Number five. Submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Now, don't mistake. I believe I am called 
and it is my vocation to strengthen my wife and to be strong for her. She should draw down strength from me every day. I should stand for her, pray for her, live for her, be there for her. She should feel safe and helped by my existence, not depleted by my whining. However, there's going to be a day when John Piper's not going to be there, probably. We both think I'm dying first. In that day, her primary source of strength will not have been lost. Agreed? In this text, that is clear because this woman is being told, find your hope in God, find your fearlessness in that hope, find your personhood in that fearlessness, in that hope, and out of that strength, win this man. That's just the opposite of leaning on him. She hopes for the day when she can lean on him. Number six. Submission does not mean a wife is to act out of fear toward her husband. Verse six, second half of the verse again. You are her, you are Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In other words, your submission is free, not coerced. You give it because King Jesus summons you into this relationship to give it, not because you're cowering before this man. When she submits, she submits as a freed woman. She's Christ's freed woman. That's what submission is not. Those six things. What is it? Three weeks ago, I gave you a definition. I'll give it again and unpack it a little bit. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Say it another way. It's a disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination, notice these are heart words here, not behavior words, only, a disposition to follow the husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says things like this. Let me put some words in your mouth, women, and see if they feel like, okay, I want to talk like that. Wife to husband, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in this relationship when you're passive and I have to make the family work. Frankly, I think almost all married women want to talk like that. I think that is a a true expression of what God calls a woman to be. I'll say it again. 
I delight, husband, in you taking initiative in our family. That makes me happy. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead in love. And I don't flourish as much in this relationship when you're passive and I have to do what has to be done to make this family work. Close quote. Submission does not follow the husband into sin, I've said. So what if he asks you to do something you believe King Jesus would forbid? What do you say to him? Can submission function at that point in saying no? How would submission say no to an authoritative join me in an act she cannot with a conscience join him? And I'll, I'll give you the words that I think should come out of your mouth. It grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know that. You know who I am. You know I'm a Christian. It grieves me when you ask me to follow you into this. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. You can add whatever word you use. Honey, sweetheart, darling, Johnny. I hope not. I have no desire to resist you On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin as much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage. Christ is my king. I think that's the way submission says no. Submission says no. It has to say something like that if 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6 says what it says. The reason I said a few minutes ago, as I tried to unpack that definition, that submission is a disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield, is that those dispositions and those inclinations can be there and a wife disagree with the direction the husband's about to go. Did you make that distinction? Her heart is really inclined to follow. Her heart is really eager for him to be the leader. And he's about to make a decision that she thinks is really bad. Now, I'm talking about Christian. I'm talking about Noel and John. So, I'll try to put words into Noel's mouth. I was hoping she's going to be here tonight for this, but she couldn't because Talitha was still asleep after a sleepover. She'll be here tomorrow, and I'll be down in Burnsville. But suppose John, having talked with his wife a long time, is uh, still about to make a very stupid decision, as Noel considers stupidity. He obviously doesn't think it's stupid, or he wouldn't be doing it. But she thinks it's a foolish 
decision. I don't know, it could be financial, it could be something around the house, whatever. Not sin, we're not talking about sin here, just why would you do that? What should she do? So here's what I think she should say. Johnny, I know you've thought a lot about this, and I, I love it when you take the initiative and think a lot about things and plan for us and take the responsibility like this, but really, I don't have peace about this, this decision. And I think we need to talk about it some more. So could we, like maybe tonight or lunch on Monday? Close quote. Now, there are four reasons why I think that is submission. Here they are. Number one, because husbands, unlike Christ, are fallible and should admit it, that they need wisdom from their wives, especially as regards family things. Number two, this is probably the most important, because husbands ought to want their wives to be excited about family decisions since Christ wants the church to be excited about his decisions. He does not want begrudging obedience from the church. I think this is a stupid decision, Jesus, but you're God and I'll follow you. He's not want that. That's not honoring to King Jesus and husbands don't want that kind of following. Number three. Because of the way she spoke to me. She found a way verbally to endorse my leadership, express delight in my usual patterns of behavior. Not this one. And number four, this is the most controversial, probably. She has made it clear since 1966 two years before we were married. She has made it clear to me and reaffirmed it year after year along the way, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, that if we have talked about this as long as we can talk and you, John Piper, still think you should do that, your decision Holds, and I'm back in it. That's what my wife would say if she were sitting here. She would nod up and down. That's right. I do say that. In a good marriage, it almost never comes to that. But the fact that she's willing to say it is huge for a man and for Christ. So I end with a reminder that Marriage is not mainly about staying in love. Marriage is mainly about covenant keeping. And the reason it is mainly about covenant keeping is because it's mainly about the relationship between Christ and his covenant people, the church. And defining that relationship of Christ and the church is leadership and following Therefore, if in a marriage we say it doesn't matter whether we deal with a wife's submission and a husband's headship, we are preparing our marriages to lie to the world. 
Marriage is created in this world to display Christ and the church and how in this loving relationship, a magnificent bond is formed that when it is lived out is beautiful to watch. And and perhaps I should end on this note, lest it go without saying or lest it go unsaid. Christ came for his church and died for her in order to bring about her everlasting holy joy. Therefore, it cannot be bad news in a Christian marriage when... That is happening. When a wife is following that kind of sacrificial lead, it is beautiful to behold. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I so long for the husbands and wives of our church to grow up into this calling of headship and submission, biblically understood. I long for single people to embrace their singleness while they have it as your calling on their lives and to embrace this vision as you summon them to it. And I pray for children to get it and to want it, to dream about it someday, and to mature into it sooner than many of our young people do today because they've been so ill-taught on the maturities of manhood and womanhood. And I pray for those who are 60, 70, 80, maybe alone, that they would embrace this vision, pray this vision, teach this vision, commend this vision, And God, grant that the world would see your son in his covenant-keeping love and his church modeled in wives in her covenant-keeping love. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.